food stuff. Oh my gosh, I feel tired. <laughs> but I'm t- I tell you what, I'm ready. Ready for Welcome to Super Duper Sisters. Super Duper Sisters. Yes, the Paranormal Podcast. Uh, that's what's okay. We're going to talk only like me today. We're going to both talk like me for the whole episode. <laughs> it's going to go by in about 15 minutes, and it will be unintelligible. It, yeah, unintelligible. I'm Jake. And I'm Wyatt. Welcome back, everybody. Yeah, or welcome if it's your first time. This is the show where we talk about spooky, mysterious, strange, otherwise uh, unexplainable things uh, from a scientific perspective. That's right. And sometimes sciencey things from the other side. That's right. <laughs> or something. <laughs> sure. Once in a blue moon. Uh, today... If I'm not mistaken, we were talking about darkness. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I think we talked about doing something seasonally appropriate for our northern hemisphere winter yes. situation. You this plus the previous episode equals winter. Exactly. I think you suggested we do a winter theme. I was like, I think we just did. <laughs> so we're, we're doing the other part of it, which is the crushing darkness of winter. Exactly. The crushing darkness. <laughs> I suppose it's a very generous topic as we could probably fit at least tangentially, just about any other episode under darkness as Exactly, well. and that made it kind of tough to find a specific kind of angle for it. I think we've both found one that works. I uh, I think mine is fine, <laughs> and I'm first, so we can get it out of the way. There you go. All right, <laughs> sounds good. Um, yeah, I'm like, get it over with. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, generally I had, um, uh, like you said, any of the stories we cover tend to be somehow dark related could have done a lot of them i decided i wanted to do something that was um kind of quick and easy and i did find some pretty cool ones in the process (laughs) and dirty yep oh especially that wanted to find like i found some pretty cool ones that i'm actually going to save for future episodes i think they'd be better suited to a more specific theme than this so i wanted to find something instead that was kind of neat but also um it specifically was about the distinction between how a place seems in the day versus at night. So ah. darkness being a kind of a more important factor in it. So I'll begin with an account from Sandman79. Ah. Uh, that's uh, S-A-N-M-A-N, man, 79. Uh, Sandman. Yes. Uh, Sans D, man. Right. Posted uh, this three years ago, and uh, it goes like this. I thought I'd share some experiences from my short time as the night watchman at a very old historic cemetery. Ah. So already pretty, pretty classic, spooky classic kind of thing. Opener. Mm-hmm. I worked the 4 p.m. to 12 a.m. shift. The cemetery generally closed at 6 p.m., so around 5:30 p.m. I would lock the main gate, then would start driving through the cemetery to notify any visitors that we'd be closing soon. I'd instruct them to park in a line in front of the locked main gate, and when my drive through the grounds was complete, I would unlock the main gate. Everyone would leave, and I would lock the gate behind them. So one day, I'm in the middle of my final drive through and I see an old lady slowly walking the sidewalk alongside a mausoleum. Here we go. The mausoleum was hundreds of feet long, about 20 feet tall, and had no breaks in it. It was one long stretch. The road ran directly alongside the sidewalk of the mausoleum, so I pull up behind the lady to tell her where uh, tell her we're closing, get out of my car, take my eyes off her for a split second as I'm getting out of my car, and when I shut the door and look up, she's gone, completely vanished. I didn't think anything paranormal at first. I just thought maybe I lost sight of her. But the sidewalk and road were completely empty. I ran all the way around to check the back of the mausoleum, but no one was there. Across from the mausoleum was a whole field of graves, and uh, I eagle-eyed the shit out of every row, not a soul in sight. Finish up my round. Uh, I finish my round up, and I sit in my car the rest of the night in a well-lit area. 
I saw a visible person. I know it. No tricks of light. No hallucination. Plain as day. Huh. Uh, yeah. So that's that's his beginning kind of right. tale of uh, which is you know a kind of also standard nighttime thing. I saw a weird thing. I couldn't explain, and it right. was weird. And um, I definitely did see it. Yes. Uh, so he, he goes on from here. Normally, my then girlfriend, now wife, would drop by around 8 p.m. and bring me dinner since I couldn't really leave. I never told her about my experiences because I didn't want to freak her out. As I'm walking her back to her car to leave, I see her reach back and touch her ponytail, then look around with a look on her face. I ask her what's wrong, and she says, Nothing. I must have got my ponytail caught in a tree branch. I felt something. So I pointed, her, uh, pointed out to her that the nearest tree was 20 feet away, and that's impossible. Then she gets real pale and says, I felt like someone ran their hand through her hair, front to back, and then pulled on the ponytail. Ooh. We were both pretty freaked out, and she left. She never came and brought me dinner again, lol. Huh. I was originally hired because the cemetery had a period of time where they were experiencing some grave robbers and people breaking in to perform satanic rituals. Mm-hmm. It's the thing you do in a cemetery all the time. I, yeah. I would actually suspect more likely just like teens breaking in to hang out, but they think, mm-hmm. oh, satanic rituals. Like, eh. But <laughs> I mean, come on. Either yeah. way, if you don't want them in there, then sure, hire a, a night guard person. Yeah. Um, I was 21 years old doing this as a side job with no gun, no weapons, or anything like that. I was given a barcode. <laughs> <laughs> I was given a, it's like you said, just hide out and they immediately give you a whole arsenal of things to protect Get away from the, the gravestone! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Jesus Christ! Yeah. <laughs> I was given a barcode scanner and a license to kill. Uh, no, I was given a barcode scanner. <laughs> yeah. I was told to drive through the entire cemetery every hour or so to patrol and to scan each of the pre-posted barcodes to prove I was actually doing it. Jesus. So, these gravestones made out of gold? <laughs> I don't I don't understand. It sounds very much like, oh, this person had a like capital B boss in charge of yeah, this really. job like ugh. And definitely the kind of thing where depending on when this actually occurred, if you had access to a if you had a smartphone, you you 100% go through one time, take a picture of every barcode. And then you just scan your phone every night after that. Ooh, <laughs> no way in hell do you want to actually... Do- That's just so stupid. Hacking the system. This guy says it's a, it's, uh, now, the cemetery was massive, pretty much broken into three parts. The newer part, the historic part, and the famous part where celebrities and other famous people are buried. I did this routine once and never did it again, going so far as to break the damn barcode scanner so I didn't have to do it. Huh. Another way around. Like, oh, it doesn't work. Mm. Can't can't do it. Sorry. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. They're like, you literally broke this. <laughs> 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 Go on. Uh, while you're, I was you're fired. Dri- <laughs> while I was driving, it was pitch black. Coming around a long curved road, my headlights picked up what I could have sworn were a pair of legs walking across the path, Ooh, only uh, up to the knee. Shoes, pants, knees, then absolutely nothing. I stopped dead in the road and just watched this pair of legs with no body cross the road ten feet in front of me. Ugh. I put the car in reverse, did what felt like the longest K turn in my life, and noped it straight back to the parking lot. Ugh. Other quick things were lesser experiences of just hearing strange noises and seeing floating lights in the cemetery after I know for sure everyone was gone, weird animal sounds that I couldn't recognize, etc. The things that he kind of dismissing as like, I don't know what it was, but like it wasn't a big deal, so whatever. Right. With with the legs thing, I kind of, I think if it's super dark, especially if it's like if there's low visibility, if there's a little bit of a fog or something, and someone walks across your headlight like beam area, but depending on the angle of your car and stuff, you could only light up the part yeah. that you see and seem like there's nothing else i don't know but it still sounds still that's kind of grasping at straws for for an explanation there but uh just wondering but again things being weirder in the dark for sure the guy who worked the day shift there which was 8 a.m to 4 p.m 
was a grimy dude. We'll call him Bart. Part of our job was to go around the cemetery and check the graves for personal effects left by family members and remove them. Many people left things like toys for children who had passed away, birthday cards, mementos, etc. <laughs> they left bodies in the earth. People were digging these great big, super like six foot deep holes. Yeah, horrible big. vandalism. Yeah. <laughs> I personally hated this policy and refused to enforce it. Who was I to take a dead child's toy a fire engine and throw it away? Oof. But Barr had the habit of scouring the cemetery for things he deemed valuable and would take them home instead of throwing them away or bringing them to the office to be picked up oh, by the family. God. In the short time I worked there, Bart's mental state deteriorated. He started spending hours there, even after his shift was over, walking around the cemetery and drinking heavily. He seemed detached and even more out there than when I first met him. Oh boy. Eventually, when I didn't see him for a week or so, I asked about him and my boss said he just no-called, no-showed, and never heard from him again. I often wondered if he developed some type of attachment from bringing uh, bringing so many objects home he shouldn't have. Once Bart stopped showing up, I picked up his Saturday morning shift. It was a quiet day, so I pulled my car around the back of the old chapel to take a nap. The chapel was surrounded by 12-foot-high hedges, so I figured it was a good spot to park for an hour and shut my eyes. I fall asleep and wake up to see my car completely surrounded by dead people. So real, so vivid, so much detail. They were all pressed up against the glass and windshield. They had on the outfits they were buried in, suits, dresses, but all dirty and in different stages of decomposition. No one spoke, no one moved. They all just stared like I was some zoo exhibit. Then I woke up. I had been asleep and it was a dream. The thing there is, we go. it felt so real. I have never had a dream so real, so vivid before or after. I took mm. it as a message. I called my boss and quit as soon as I left at 4 p.m. I go back to that cemetery from time to time because I have three grandparents and an aunt buried there. I never linger too long, though. and always make sure I'm out long before it gets dark. So there's kind of a, a warm-up story about just the experience of being in the dark and the spookiness that that can entail. So like I said, some kind of boilerplate sort of experience type stuff. Like, oh, it's the weird things, weird spooky dreams, but uh, oh, yeah. all, all pretty creepy and all really more specific to the, the dark aspect of that place where it's a thing where like, oh, it doesn't feel so scary until the sun goes down. Always worse in the darkness, that's yeah. for sure. So I thought it would be kind of fun to look into a little bit more about why the dark is scary and why these spooky stories mm-hmm. tend to happen in the dark. It seems like, you know, most of the stories we, we uh, cover on this show happen at night or in a dark place or something. Mm-hmm. So it would be kind of, kind of need to maybe examine uh, why that might be. you have any initial thoughts about that, Mr. Dr. Shell? One is you just simply can't see stuff. So your mind will race to fill the gaps. And I think we're also uh, probably hardwired to be on guard when it is dark out. It must be an extremely deeply set, you know, self-protection mechanism. So those two things, hand in hand, recipe for feeling creeped out when Mm -hmm. uh, the lights are out. Yeah, I can get into a bit of the uh, psychology in a second here, but uh, just even just from the basic cultural standpoint, too, we, um, I mean, for years, again, going back to probably earlier days when darkness and the lack of visibility was a scarier place for humans, predators hunting at night and just being at the end where you can't see, it's much harder to to stay safe against the stuff they can see. Um, so there being a, like all of the stories, folk tales and things that started coming up usually involved any bad thing happening at night or in the dark. And also just like you said, being in the dark, you can't see stuff and that makes it much scarier to know like 
if you're safe, if there's something else out there. If you're ever, if you've ever experienced total darkness, I think I mentioned this recently when we were talking about caves or something, being in a cave and having uh, the, the tour guide turned off uh, all the lights so we could experience true total darkness. It is really a uniquely, like, terrifying experience if you've never had it happen before. Because it almost, you almost feel a weight to, like, the darkness around you. And you can't, you just, you, no matter how, you instantly feel yourself opening your eyes as wide as they'll go. It does not do anything because there's no extra light to catch just by opening your Ugh, eyes more. It's right. just, there isn't light. So there's something about dark that definitely gets at us. Another cool thing, too, I think we've covered on this show briefly in talking about kind of possible explanations for hauntings and things that go bump in the night, stuff like that, is uh, the way our human eyes work in the dark, which is mm-hmm. the fact that we have... Um, eyeballs have what's called rods and cones in them. Rods and, and cones. Uh, and... If, Correct me if I'm mistaken about this, but cones are more for color vision and rods more for movement and stuff? Correct, sir. Cool. And uh, our peripheral vision has way fewer uh, cones and a lot more rods. And so as a result, it's way easier to detect well, low light, for one thing. You can see more stuff in low light in the in your periphery than you can straight in front of you. Correct. And you can detect movement much more easily than you can out there than you can see anything else. So... If you're in a dark place, it's much more likely that you can see stuff out of the corner of your eye than you can right in front of you, and much easier to, like, if some, any, just an inanimate object, some kind of thing moves, you're going to pick up on that out of the corner of your eye much more easily than you would something in front of you, so it's, it's just adding to the spook factor. Yeah, you will catch that glimmer of motion, but when you turn to actually confirm what you've seen, you are less able to see it. (laughs) Right. And so that's how you can see, like, maybe, maybe like, you know, a a curtain. It could even just be a flicker of a shadow, too. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Like a curtain kind of flapped in in the breeze a little bit, and you suddenly turn to look at it, and you see, there's nothing there. What what could that have been? Because it stopped flapping. It was was something you could see a movement, but then you look and just see just normal, ordinary things in an empty room. Gosh. It, It can be weird. If only that were true... In a small town in Maine in 2003. <laughs> Join the Patreon to have a better idea what what Wyatt's talking about here. Also, another small town in Maine. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I was no, thinking no, of Goody Maine. Right. Yeah. Goody it's Maine is one. I didn't know what the year. Yeah, Norwich Walk, Maine. Perhaps, or Much even Darkness so. Falls, Maine. A coastal town. Oh, shit. There's a lot of Maine stuff. It's quite a right. Dark, Darkness Falls, Maine, where, uh, let's just say... Their tooth fairy is not very nice, but she is afraid of the lighthouse. I'm just missing on all of these cultural references, unfortunately, so this That's is all right. for the listener. Yes. For those who know. <laughs> uh, I have some a little bit of stuff here from uh, a, an article in the Sci-Kai Journal of Psychological Research uh, from 2015 is when this article came out. I'll link cool. to it as well. Many studies have demonstrated that humans are afraid of the dark. So people have like empirically looked into, like, oh yeah, people were afraid of the dark. Not a huge surprise. <laughs> it's settled law. <laughs> like we kind of talked about, they said the lack of any kind of visual stimuli increases anxiety, uncertainty, and tension in people. So just the fact that you can't tell what's out there can just start to build up that fear response. Uh, children are at greater risk uh, for this fear. Fear of the dark is common in children and is considered a normal response during development. It's just kind of something that happens in our lives. Darkness facilitates a startle response in the brain that increases anxiety. Uh, the brain is wired to 
quote, flinch first and ask questions later. <laughs> so it's the, the fight, flight, freeze response thing. Yeah. Um, most of the time, this fear is short-lived, but in some cases, the fear can be very problematic. It can persist mm-hmm. throughout development and strengthen in magnitude. So depending on like what mm. your experiences may be as a child growing up, uh, the normal fear of the dark that people usually get over as they get older um, may have some kind of reason to just get more built in, uh, just kind of mm. packed into place. Certain um, children develop fears in response to specific points in their development due to environmental factors, which may or may not be rational. It can be rational or realistic kind of stuff. Older children, on the other hand, tend to have more realistic fears. So, like, mm. you start out with just, like, a general fear of what's in the darkness could be totally made-up stuff. And then as you get older, it more often than not kind of gives way to a more specific, more concrete fear of what might be in the dark. Like for me, it was ghosts, and then when I was a little older, the biting rats. <laughs> exactly. Wyatt uh, grew up in a box under the stairs in the corner of a basement. In the adult population, the frequency of specific phobias is actually fairly high, or higher than you might guess. About 11 to 12% of men and women will endure some kind of phobic symptoms at some time in their lives. Hmm. So the fear of the dark specifically is called nyctophobia. So that's that's the uh, ongoing like irrational fear of the dark as an adult. Hmm. I don't know if I know anybody personally who has this specific fear to you, Mr. Dr. Chell. Uh, no, not not beyond, you know, I would imagine that would be the bin in which the phobia is, uh, let's just say, clinically challenging for a person mm-hmm. sure. versus just our, I would say, you know, collective socially functional <laughs> and acceptable fear of the dark and it is funny too because it doesn't matter how old you get you, fears that you had as a kid will find a way to still just kind of be there in some way even if you've long grown past the point of like you know, oh I, that was something i never had to be afraid of there was no monster in my basement i had to worry about but right i still the kernel know. of it remains oh yeah so you still like well i'm not gonna take my time going up the stairs i'm gonna huh. get up there as fast as i can once those lights are out <laughs> You truly grew up in an extremely creepy house, though, it sounds that also, like. Also, yeah, which is, I mean, again, if when you do eventually get to visit, which will be hopefully soon. Yes. It's not a creepy house. Like, there's nothing about it that is creepy. The basement, right. even before more parts of it were finished, was still always a pretty cozy hangout spot. Mm-hmm. But uh, any any space, once the lights are out, has a very different vibe to it. Even more so, like, in a case like that, if you if it is, like, the basement kind of thing you're leaving, if you have to turn your back on the dark space, too... That could feel yes. even worse because not only can you not see, but also you're not even facing. So you have the additional like lack of knowledge or preparedness for whatever <laughs> you kind of feel like might be there. Right, right. Not a whole lot else for me to add today. It's just generally oh. kind of setting up the idea of darkness as a concept. I know your your topic for the day will be a little bit separate from that, but I think um, perhaps we could find some kind of way to shoehorn some of this into that for the sake of it. I don't oh, know. Oh, I, I say we could. Absolutely, Jake. This is cool. great. Before I jump into mine, though, I think it's uh, high time we got back into a segment that can only be described as The Quaff. Yes, welcome everyone to The Quaff. It's been several whole episodes we we're badly in need of another round of this here segment where we uh we drink a beer and uh talk about a beer in a more specific way than we otherwise might on the show articulately put we of course reviewed the beers for their physicality how the beer looks what does it look like how does the can look or bottle how does the beer itself look it's 
chugability. How fast you drink this beer? And of course, the one everyone waits for, the beer's joie de vivre. And today, we have on the docket, Big Doinks. Big Doinks, an extra dank IPA from Thursday Brewing Co-op here in the Twin Cities. Ah, yes. I will say, this was a very fun thing to get in the mail. So this is for anyone who is a keen-eyed, eagle-eared, super-duperstitious stan. If you follow us on Instagram, is what he's saying. You will have seen me <laughs> clumsily opening a box full of garbage and this beer <laughs> that Jake sent me what feels like a hundred years ago now, but it was probably just a couple weeks. It was, yeah, a couple to three weeks ago. And um, it is a big old can. Yeah, I sent you a crowler. It's a crowler of beer that he sent me. So you can share that with uh, with your ex-girlfriend, current wife. Yes. I will not do that. I'm okay. going to spear it in the side and shotgun, shotgun. it live. <laughs> now, of course, the can is extremely cool looking. Yeah. I it's got think very... I would give this can high marks, but I want to see what the beer looks like. What do yeah. you think, Jake? Oh, yeah. The can itself has some fun kind of really neat artfully done leave, uh, leaf sort of motif going around, different colors yes. and lines and stuff. Somewhere between Paisley and Jungle. Perhaps yes. Paisley Jungle. Yeah. The name itself is in sort of a 60s, 70s sort of uh, funky Lava slash psychedelic font. Lava lamp font. That's a great way to describe it. And uh, yeah, I would definitely give the can high marks as well, but the can is not all there is to look at. We should see what the beer looks like. One cannot drink a can alone. Ooh, that ah. was, that's a nice crouch. Yes. Distributing as I usually do, too much beer onto my laptop. <laughs> I don't hear that at all. God damn it. No wonder it didn't work. <laughs> you Fuck. Have the microphone off. I turned the microphone off. There you go. Well, I'm back with a glass, which did not take me forever to get. I just grabbed it real quick. There was no dead air or anything you have to worry about. I'm using our uh, lovely, super oh. superstitious Belgian beer glass, tulip style glass, available only through our Patreon. I'm going to go ahead and try and pour this shit. Oh my God, Jake. A nice sound, but a terrible pour because I didn't hold the glass up. I just poured straight into it and it is almost exclusively head. <laughs> Something everybody enjoys. Am I right? <laughs> Here, check it out. Wow. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> that is incredible. I'll try to get a picture to post. Um, a real bad job. The beer itself is your typical clear IPA. There's perhaps a light haze. It has all the haze of a window that needs to be defogged. Right. Uh, so what would we give this this beer's physicality? You know, overall, I'd give it an eight. There's a little room for, I don't even know, I always, I always like to go just a little south of the top mark unless I'm truly almost speechless with him feeling impressed, and I'm going to just go ahead and give this one an eight. If it was based on only the can, I would have gone nine or ten, but after yes. seeing the lack of haze, I am giving it an eight as well, so... Glad we're in lockstep we with our eights lately. Now it's time for the uh, all important actually trying the beer. I, if I can exactly. get to it past the foam. Yes. You're going to have a foamy milk mustache that probably goes all the way up to your glasses. Oh, yeah. I'm going to stick my head straight in here. Woo! Man. That is an IPA. That is your classic, certifiable, West Coast, piney, imperial. Pine ale, more like it, am I right? It's India, not Imperial. 
Imperial. <laughs> India Pale Ale. India Pine Ale. <laughs> I would call this a five. Let me have another quick sip of this to see. I'm going to go with uh, a six. Ooh. I, think I, tend, I think I tend to drink all of mine faster than you regardless. We, uh, so. we can very much drink IPAs, which of course stands for Imperial Pine. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, the giantness of this can makes me just want to drink it out of the can. Do like it. <laughs> Who cares? Like a four-year-old sneaking beer for my dad or something. Gotta hold both hands. Yeah, exactly. Boy, oh boy. And I suppose there's nothing left to do but sign this beer's which I'll go ahead and say Imperial India Pale Pine Ale. <laughs> Perfect. Should I give one as well or do you want to just leave it with that? Goodbye. <laughs> and, and this, this has been, been, this been the Quaff. The Quaff. <laughs> but since we're already talking about beer, we might as well talk about a beer that uh, is more near and dear to us to here. To our little hearts. Yes, nicely rhymed on your dime. That, of course, is a groovy and growing brewery in western Massachusetts, mm. which incorporates cold room, fire lizard, volume knob, vibration, plant matter, <laughs> fluid, and fungus in time <laughs> to make a particular brand of fermented refreshment. That's, of course, Four Phantoms Beer. <laughs> I appreciate that uh, I I never do any prep for the like, copy for this segment. You always have something new every time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you're in the New England area and considering a purchase of a brewed beverage, please consider buying a beer from Four Phantoms. Here are some more Four Phantoms updates for any of our local listeners, mm-hmm. local to the New England area. Assuming we get this out Thursday, January 20th, and you are listening to it on the day of its release, <laughs> tonight <laughs> is free bacon night at the Four Phantoms Tavern in Greenfield. Pretty self-explanatory. Bacon and beer. What more do you want? Yeah. This Friday and next, that's January 21st and 28th, respectively, Four Fandoms will be hosting viewing parties of the show Critical Role, which I read online, (laughs) uh, features a group of professional voice actors improvising a D&D campaign. Uh, So swing by for a drink and watch. They also have delicious food. January 23rd is Sunday movie night at the Tavern. So swing by to watch The Sword and the Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. And then January 27th, they will host a D&D one-shot, which is basically a single-session campaign for anyone who's brave enough to take that on. I'm not sure exactly how you sign up or whatever, but <laughs> check out their website and check out the beer. Yeah. And that's pretty much that. Thank you very much for Phantoms. Thank you very much. Okay, so... Take us into the land of James Cameron. Yes, I will do that. And by land, I mean world. Yes. And by world, I don't mean Pandora. I was just going to say that I'm going to take us to the darkest place, which of course is the movie Avatar. I just saw that the second one is actually coming out in like not... I think in the coming year, possibly. He's making another? Oh, he's making four or five. Four of them? I think four sequels. Jeez Louise. Like he decided that as soon as the first one came out. I was like, wait, no, don't do that. Why are you putting all of your chips on that? I think when you have that kind of money, you don't care. You can just do whatever it's you true. want. Something must have happened to him. 
in the deep sea. One might say the abyss. Ooh, that actually, wasn't a bad. You saw movie. his. You saw his greatest fear. <laughs> Is that how that movie worked? No. What am I thinking of? Oh, doesn't matter. I figured for today we could play a little game. This is a game you'll probably ace, Jake. Okay. Uh, but maybe our listeners out there in the wide world will have the chance to fail at. <laughs> um, and this, of course, is the age-old game of guess that deep sea creature or disc. <laughs> deep sea creatures live in an environment of unbelievably immense pressure, well below what is known as the photic zone, which is the portion of the ocean water column that sunlight is able to penetrate down into. Mm-hmm. Uh, naturally, the exact depth of the photic zone varies by the amount of sunlight actually available at any given time, but it can extend as far as 200 meters in the open ocean. Wow. It's actually quite a decent depth of around 660 feet, yeah. or roughly as deep as a 43-story tower is tall. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty decent depth, but there's so much more ocean than that. There is so much more ocean. Um, and dim glimmerings of light extend even further down than that, down to around 500 meters. But after that, things get pretty dark. Mm. And down here, the weight of all that water exerts a pressure equivalent to something like 3,000 to 9,000 pounds per square inch. Wow. In fact, at the deepest point of the Mariana Trench, which is an especially deep, deep sea rift, and also the deepest point on the technical surface of the earth. The pressure is over eight tons per square inch. Wow. So I've been told by Judith Gradwall, writing for an ancient Smithsonian Institution <laughs> webpage. And this is a pressure equivalent to a person holding up. And Jake, let's just go ahead and start the first question right here. Dun, dun. <laughs> At the deepest point in the Mariana Trench, the pressure is equivalent to a person holding up how many jumbo jets, Jake? Ooh, oh, wow. Hmm. Is it A, 5, <laughs> B, 23, C, 39, or D, 48? All right, listeners, write your answers in now. <laughs> yes, everyone at home, please play along. <laughs> Number of jumbo jets being held up by a single person. <laughs> I'm going to go with 48? No, th- 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 39. I want to say 39. Final answer, 39. Yes, it's D. 48 fucking oh, jumbo jets. Wow. <laughs> Man, I should have stayed with my first uh, gut response. Damn. You were right. These are truly extreme conditions, uh, aspects that would seem even otherworldly if described without measurement, and I think that's an appropriate catch-all detail for the creatures you'll all be guessing about today. Hmm. Otherworldly, even nightmarish, if not for their actually existing deep down in the darkness. Hmm. I hope I'm not stepping on any of your segment at all by saying this, but the f- first expedition down into the Marianas Trench, uh, I don't remember when that was or who the guys were, two guys in a submersible, especially designed like craft. It was like a, there's a, a part they were in and a p- above them was a tank full of uh, gasoline, I think. Cause they oh, needed, shit. Uh, something to use uh, as something that was b- more buoyant. Like th- It was lighter than water. They could, could float them up but not be air because... It needed to be um, not compressible, so the pressure... Oh, God. Of course. Could, uh, yeah. So they just started going down, 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 and uh, it was, you know, a long-ass time going down. It was a matter of hours, I think. Right. And some way into it, like midway into their trip down, they heard a loud boom. Oh. And uh, it's like, well, what should we do? And they're like, ah, let's 
let's keep going. So they did. They went all the way to the, all the way down and they hit the bottom and sat there and uh, they had the lights on, had the camera. And when they hit the bottom, they kicked up a bunch of sediment and it all just kind of got suspended and didn't really settle. Huh. Because it, I mean, the water being so compressed down there, sediment uh, would be pretty much neutrally buoyant once it's actually kicked up. Oh and so it, it, they couldn't really see anything. So like, okay, well, let's get out of here. I went back up to the top. And when they actually were back on the boat again, they were able to look at the outside of the hull of their craft. And there was a great big giant crack in it, like an inch across. Oh my God. Yeah. That is so fortunate that yeah. it wasn't worse. Oh, yeah. Because they're like, like, the spec thing went, it sounded really bad, but nothing bad seems to be happening right now. Yeah. So let's keep going. Oh, my gosh. I, I, man, that's another kind of situation where I would love to do it, but I would love, I'm, I'm satisfied to have video footage. Yes. I would be very freaked out. Supposedly, James Cameron, when he made his, his own special little journey down there, um, got some footage that he's supposed to be using in one of his Avatar sequels. So, oh, wow. Which well, I feel like, why? But <laughs> Hey, you know what? What a weird place to uh, take your career out to pasture on, but I guess yeah. that's what he wants to do. He's always loved you the know? ocean, so more power to him. Why not? Um, but weird Avatar passion product. I don't know. Anyway, keep going. So... First off, number one question. The other one is just warm up, so it doesn't doesn't matter. Which of the following traits is a real life feature of one of these deep sea critters? A, the largest eyes proportional to overall body size in the entire animal kingdom. Hmm. B, the ability to extrude a sticky cloud of bioluminescent mucus containing countless glowing blue orbs for nearly 10 minutes at a time when disturbed. (laughs) C, James Cameron. D, rows and rows of small tooth-like projections on bo- parts of its body. Huh. Um, let me think about this. I'm going to go with D? Yes. A, right. B, and D are okay. all correct. I thought, they, I thought there was no all of the above. I guess you kind of, this one couldn't be C, so. Um, <laughs> but hey, you never know. <laughs> I should have had James Cameron be one of these. That would have been great. Sure. Lurking in the depths. Yes. These all describe the vampire squid. It's one of your classic horrifying looking but surprisingly tame foot long deep sea creatures. They're also captivation certified for all 10 year olds. As I mentioned in the clues, vampire squids indeed have the largest eye to body ratio of any known animal at one Uh inch. Their eye is fully one twelfth of their overall body size. And just to put that into perspective... That's essentially equivalent to a six-foot-tall person boasting a six-inch-wide eye. Oh, my God. <laughs> also, super fun scientific name. You know what it is, Wyatt? Uh, no. Vampirotuthus infernalis. Oh, yes. The, the vampire, vampire squid, squid from, from hell. hell. <laughs> See, Jake could do my segment. I knew this was coming. I knew he'd get it. <laughs> vampire squids, eight arms, I guess exchanged... The playful of vaguely off-putting suckers germane to so many cephalopods for just fangs, which might give you the impression that they are waiting around to latch on to prey, but they are instead used as a form of self-defense, folding their arms up and around their bodies when attacked ah, to create a kind of spiny case. That's cool. This, combined with the aforementioned 10-minute-long mucus-based light show, <laughs> allows them to elude most predators. Okay, number two. The anglerfish are well-known for their amazing bioluminescent angling organ. Mm -hmm. No jokes. 
used to lure prey in the deep dark. This organ is what? A. A unique structure found only in this order of bony fish. B. A modified dorsal ray. C. James Cameron. D. Some other shit. <laughs> Uh, I'm tempted to say D some other shit, but I'm going to go with the uh, B, the modified dorsal ray. Correct. <laughs> A unique modification of the dorsal ray. Uh, I think most of us have by now seen at least one image of an angler fish. Uh, mm-hmm. If the name isn't calling this creature to mind, this is the creature that looks like if a cancerous tumor had a mouth. <laughs> they are a gross-looking thing uh, that really speaks to the fact that at some 1,400 meters underwater, you might never even know what your life partner looks like, and that's probably for the best. And the also, trade- they would oh, yeah. be, go ahead. You're gonna, you're probably gonna say, what were you gonna say? Uh, as far as being not knowing what your life partner looks like, but also it is attached to you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I actually don't say that. I forgot to talk oh, okay, about yeah. that. So you should bring it up in just a minute. Sure. Uh, the trademark and eponymous angling organ of the anglerfish, uh, which is technically called an esca from the Latin for bait. Mm. Glows by action of bioluminescent bacteria. Yes, you heard me right. A symbiotic bacteria that live inside of and around the esca are the source of the anglerfish's greatest parlor trick. And studies even indicate that in many species, both fish and bacteria have become locked in an obligate mutualism. Hmm. So the, cool. uh, the mother anglerfish may even seed their offspring with cultures of these bacteria. I was going to ask how that would work. That that makes sense. And yes, Jake, would you like to add another anglerfish factoid? When uh, anglerfish mate, the male is much smaller than the female, and uh, he'll just kind of latch on and um, and then start to get absorbed into the female until he becomes just a uh, a parasitic little blob. So she just he's just a source of sperm, so she can fertilize eggs, and uh, yeah, just weird, weird, weird thing. Pretty wild. Number three, if you were to roll over a log in your backyard, what distant relative of the next critter would be waiting for you? A, a centipede. B, a newt. C, James Cameron. (laughs) D, a woodlouse. I I am pleased that uh, James Cameron was already a big part of your segment before I even brought him up. Yes. D, woodlouse. Yes. The giant isopod. Yes, it was D, the woodlouse. A distant relative of Bathonomus giganteus. Mm. This is a 7 to 14 inch long nightmare, basically an enormous <laughs> deep sea pill bug, and a great example of something that I think we've talked about here at least once before, yes. deep sea gigantism. I believe you brought it up before too. So I'm not going to go into any kind of deep dive into exactly how deep sea gigantism works, but theories range from the influence of uh, changes in metabolic demands, temperature, and reduced predation pressure that all can allow things to grow supersized relative to what we might see elsewhere. Uh, if you want to imagine a giant isopod but have never seen one, uh, think of a horseshoe crab minus its long tail. Uh, if you've never seen one of those, uh, simply think of a creature roughly the the dimensions of a small cat made out of crab shells, which, <laughs> if it could make a noise, would create the sound of endless dry chittering. <laughs> Upsetting aspects aside, giant isopods are awesome deep-sea decomposers, uh, mostly scavenging on the remains of whales, fish, and other meat uh, products that wind up sinking into the dark. That said, they do also attack living creatures, 
and it's just about exactly as horrible as you can imagine <laughs> um one giant isopod was even filmed attacking a dogfish shark wow uh that wound up inside of a deep water trap by latching onto and eating the animal's face jesus christ um and this footage was aired apparently during the 2015 episode of shark week called alien sharks close encounters uh, but if you don't want to sleep even sooner than finding that episode, you can watch a quick clip of suitably ghoulish black and white cam footage of it on YouTube. <clears throat> Do you want to? I absolutely want to. I will just put it into the chat. I have. You Oops. can share screen if you want. I don't want to watch it again. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Go ahead and check this out. Turn the volume down for myself. There I don't think there's the any volume in your Yeah, you hear the shark screaming. <laughs> ooh, 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 wow. Okay, I missed... That happened way faster than I thought it was going to. All right. Swimming around. And then, ooh, it's on there. It is on. Jeez. All right. So it grabs on and the shark and starts thrashing around trying to get it off. Sediment's getting kicked up everywhere and uh, it's all over. <laughs> Damn. Ugh. So number four. Uh, just one last thing about that is that um, one other name for isopods you might find in your backyard is uh, Roly Poly. I actually didn't learn until uh, very recently that uh, like Woodlouse, Pillbug, Roly-Poly look very similar but aren't all necessarily the same thing. Roly-Poly is specifically the kind that can fully roll itself into a sphere and uh, other woodlice can't necessarily fully get the whole ball shape. Some of them just kind of curl up some. That's good to know. A good distinction. The gulper eel is also known as what? A. The pelican eel. B. Umbrella Mouth Gulper. C. James Cameron. <laughs> D. Pelican Gulper. <laughs> I like Pelican Gulper because it, it suggests that it swallows pelicans. Uh, I'm going to go with Pelican Eel. Secret answer, it was E, all of the above. Okay. <laughs> the Pelican or Gulper Eel is another of what I might call banner beasts for deep sea biology. Uh, certainly mm-hmm. so, I think, when uh, Jake and I were youngins. Absolutely. A whole quarter century ago now. <laughs> uh, they boast a big old V-shaped head with a huge mouth for their body size with a giant pouch-like lower jaw resembling a pelican's, hence the name. To see one, you'd think it would go around swallowing fish three times its size, but folks think they're actually mostly uh, crustacean specialists, hmm. including eating smaller things like shrimp uh scientists believe their large jaws stick around because they're just really useful to eat a wider menu in a place where food is scarce and Hmm. where giant isopods are and it can't be stressed enough prepare to eat your fully alive shark face off of your painfully grasping hands-free shark body (laughs) uh beyond their crazy mouths and eeliness not too much is known about gulper eels uh a point of little reported but horrifying and terribly unfortunate fact is that gulp reels and many of our other ghoulish deep sea cousins are entirely destroyed <laughs> when they are brought to the surface. Yes. <laughs> um, just as much as any of us would be summarily and so entirely obliterated by the inconceivable pressure of 48 jumbo jets <laughs> all at once where we define ourselves in the gulp reels neighborhood, they are similarly, similarly destroyed in the opposite direction <laughs> right. brought to the surface <laughs> by deep sea trawling fishing nets and other such things yeah i think i heard something about someone like pulling a hatchet fish up and then it just melted yeah they just like 
pop. It's horrible. And now, perhaps the very best for last, our final organism features what incredible organ mm-hmm. to help it detect prey and generally mess around in the deep? A, a set of thermosensitive pits like those of a pit viper. B, telescoping eyes enclosed within a large transparent dome. C, Ooh. eyes set forward and reverse along the length of its body. D, James Cameron. <laughs> This is the toughest one yet. I'm going to go with the uh, telescoping eyes and a transparent head. This guy. Correct. This is the trademark feature of the barrel eye fish. Uh, All species of this group have crazy, large, relative to their body size, telescoping eyes that are actually enclosed inside of a transparent dome of soft tissue. Uh, so to see one of these fish, you'd almost think you were looking at a cross-section of an already pretty weird fish's head. Their faces are very goofy. <laughs> They're very goofy. It's a wild setup that uh, presumably allows the barrel eye to collect even more light from their environment, thereby improving their vision. Essentially, they have two crazy binoculars pointed, or one binocular, <laughs> one pair of binoculars, uh, pointed upward to watch for teensy prey in the brighter portion of the water column above. Uh, Even more amazingly, this isn't the only group to have evolved wacky tubular eyes to help navigate deep water. There are so-called tube eyes and telescope fish, which sounds like I'm just joking around now, but it is genuinely what they're called, at least by their common names. Oh, their nicknames, anyway. Hey, it's all tube eyes over here. Hey, whole tube eyes. Uh, Yeah. Uh, They're both from entirely separate orders. Damn. That employ a similar system. So there you have it. A quick tour of some of our planet's coolest and creepiest creatures, all living in near to absolute darkness, all real and all just as wild as any other ghoulish creature that we uh, bring up on the show. Very cool. I, I just want to circle back to the barrel eye fish again, looking at pictures of it again. And it is so cool. I mean, it when you think about why it would have eyes like that, it makes sense. Like, oh, it can look straight up while, while it's doing its thing. But then you think about other fish that have evolved other ways of seeing, like say like a flounder that lives on its side, but has, its eyes have just migrated to one side so it can still see upward. Like what? Like, like so why couldn't, why couldn't its eyes have just been on the top of its head looking up, but just, like, no, yeah. it's in the head just straight. But yeah, I mean, evolution, as we said before, does not um, follow any logic. It's just something happened to work and kept working well. Exactly. Yeah. You roll the dice, the number passes the test. And then you uh, save that number for the next round. <laughs> Crazy shit. Good old darkness. Our old friend. <laughs> Hello. It has come to sit with us again <laughs> on this episode. Or meet with us again. I don't fucking remember. I don't remember. Uh, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs> do we want to do pander? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Turn it back on. Turn the machine back on. <laughs> Before we go, we have one last uh, matter to attend to. I'm going to turn on this machine Boot we it have up. here. It's called the Patron Appreciation Neural Dive for Evaluation of Risk. This is a function of the machine here called the uh, NCAA. NCAA device. Yep. <laughs> Which uh, makes sense exactly once a year, that name. Uh, even then, only slightly. <laughs> yeah. um, wait three months, and it'll make sense again. Two and a half months. Um, well, that's a big promise. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what do we do with this one? <laughs> 
So this is a strange kind of computer thing that uh, taps into the dark ether and uses the pander function to determine which cryptid creature or otherwise spooky thing out there our patrons uh, need to be on the lookout for. Mm -hmm. So uh, we will plug this machine into the backs of our skulls. There we uh, go. And, uh, yeah, simply run the program. We're going to focus in on Becca, Becca o, o of Cincinnati, Cincinnati O. o. <laughs> Hi, O. <laughs> Becca. Becca. Beware. Be on the lookout for the Indian, Indian tree of the, of the sun, sun and, and the moon. The moon. <laughs> oh, so okay. many, so many banner ads. There we go. Christ almighty. Watch out for banner ads, too, while you're at it. Yeah, we gotta clean up the uh, NCAA device. I feel like it's getting worse and worse. I didn't with, update. Uh, I, you know, I didn't update the Norton antivirus, and I should have. Ah, uh, I yeah, yeah. I'll work on that. Once these banner ads go into the brain, they stay there. They sure do. Um, yes, Becca, be on the lookout for the Indian tree of the sun and the moon, which of course was an oracular tree that told the future. And I think if it could speak now, it would say that I will eventually find Becca and destroy her. <laughs> Two parts of the tree trunk spoke depending on the time of day, daytime, nighttime, as you might imagine. Uh, Alexander the Great and Marco Polo are said to have visited the tree. Huh. It's located in Tonakane, southeast of Persia. I'll give you a little tip right now. Trees are not very fast. So you should have a pretty easy time getting away from it uh, and avoiding it, too. It, it's yeah, unlikely to catch up with you. away from Persia. Yes. Uh, or at least the area southeast of it, anyway. Yeah. Yes, in the area um, but uh, you know, if and if I, most likely it doesn't tell any tales of this harming anybody, it just tells the future. So I think what this, uh, what we're getting from Pander here is to, um, you know, not try and find out your future from a tree. Yeah, it would be a bad call. Mm -hmm. uh, this is also the origin of the famous Marco Polo statement: "It is a tall and thick tree." Oh, that's where you got that from. Okay, so yeah. Thanks, Becca. <laughs> Thank you so much, Becca. We really appreciate your support. Now let's focus on uh, another patron. This time, Caitlin, Caitlin Savo. Caitlin, first of all, so glad to hear that your move has gone well. And, uh, you know, watch out for Drop Bears. Drop bears. All right. Ah, uh, here we go. In Australia, this is, of course, a, a real, real thing. thing. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's just a scary, scary version of a, uh, a koala. A drop bear, Caitlin, is essentially a koala that will kill you. Yep. They drop by drop trees. down. Yeah. And they uh, eat you Shoot up. you with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> they may or may not then eat you after that. It's It doesn't really matter at that point because you are dead, but, uh, you know, watch out for the entirety of Australia. If you That's are in Australia, look up. Um, and if you see a drop bear, then sorry. You could put some forks in your hair spread toothpaste or Vegemite behind your ears or armpits. More than you already do anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or speak only in an Australian or English accent. Or excuse me. Australian accent in English. Specifically. So it's yeah. a pretty uh, it's a pretty xenophobic uh, creature. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, thanks so much for your support. Yes, thank you so much. And uh, let's just unplug. There we go. There it is. If you want your own creature, cryptid, whatever it is, uh, you know, calculated for you from this same device, all you got to do is become a patron at any level on our Patreon. We have three tiers, and any one of them will get your name entered. Uh, we have some very fun things behind the paywall, oh, including yeah. stickers, outtakes, 
bonus minisodes, access to the Discord. The Discord. Which is getting real fun these days. It is. That thing is popping off. No thanks to us. <laughs> yes. We have a vibrant community of people who are more interesting to talk to than we are. You. Yes, they are. <laughs> they are the other side of the show um, now. And you will meet them and they will escort you through the digital meanderings of our three discord pages or whatever we have we have a bunch of different 15 55 discord pages somewhere in there anyway please uh, consider checking out our patreon it really is what helps this show be possible yes free way to support us is to rate and review us especially on apple podcasts uh, or just tell people you know about the show if you think they'd like it do like uh, Audrey and force everyone you've ever met to listen to the show. <laughs> Spread ye old word. Oh, I, I see we have a new review, which I'm going to read. Ooh. From the day after my birthday. Uh, oh. Spooky stories with science exclamation point. This is by the plant, Bobby. Thanks, Bobby. One of the various people who Audrey dragged into our uh, our sphere. Bobby's on staff now. <laughs> we have to hire him. We had to hire him. He was he was getting too close to the product, <laughs> and uh, he's now officially getting paid as much as we do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Which is to say, he's on the karmic payroll. <laughs> exactly. So, so thanks, Bobby. We appreciate you, and we appreciate all of you for listening at all. It's very very nice to have anyone. To make the show for um, <laughs> yeah it's much better than just doing it for nobody like we thought we we're going to yes that's right the cold darkness of space to be listened to right after the aliens decode the golden disc that was sent out <laughs> yep with uh you know elvis's pubes or whatever and um yes next week we will talk about and i'm just gonna make it up now oh food-based thing great <laughs> Look forward to seeing what we do with that. <laughs> so let's Thanks for listening. Bye. Goodbye.